I think they call them salvage yards today or auto salvage. Uh, when I was growing up, we called them junkyards because that's what they looked like. They looked like a big pile of junk uh, rusting in the weather, whether it was automobiles or uh, appliances or furniture or just a big pile of a lot of different things. It's just a big pile of junk. Uh, if you're as old as I am, you remember back in the 70s, there was a popular television show about a junkyard called Sanford and Son. Anybody remember Sanford? Yeah. One of the all-time great television theme songs uh, in television history. Uh, I'm not sure that show would get put on network television today for very long. Maybe cable, but uh, probably not network. Um, yeah, we just called them junkyards. But junkyards have a, a purpose. They have a reason. Uh, because the right person with the right skills, the right eye, can go into a junkyard full of rust and broken down things, and uh, they can find items of value, whether, whether it's a complete car they restore or it's a piece of this car that's still valuable and they're going to put it with another car and it's going to help that car uh, work. That's a this crazy thing. That's why junkyards exist, because you can go in, you can find things, that are valuable and are useful, and uh, we're, we're in the store in, in the series called Salvage. That's what it's all about. It's about being able to take a situation, uh, a relationship, a person that's broken, and being able to restore them. Right? Because every every after has a before, every now has a then. And we're looking at that transformation that takes place between before and after. We we started two weeks ago with a story about a guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, Maybe you're here. Some of you probably weren't here. Uh, We kicked it off with a story about Zacchaeus. And and in that story, I made the comment that every salvage story has an ooh moment. It has a moment where things are broken and messed up. And if you looked at the circumstance, if you looked at the situation, your response would be ooh. That's not right. That's broken down. That's messed up. That's rusted and decaying. So before you get to the after, there has to be a before. Every every salvage story starts with an ooh moment. Now, the good news is if there is ooh in your life, then you're in the perfect position for an ah. If If you look at some part of your life or some relationship, some circumstance, some aspect of your life, and you think, ooh, this is broken down. This is not the way I want it to be. This is not the way I hoped it would be. This is not the way I thought it would be. If you look at any area of your life and you see that, or maybe if you look at your whole life and it's one big ooh, you are in the perfect position to experience an awe. We like the awe, right? We like the transformation. We like the big reveal, the move that bus moment. But you have to go through ooh to get to, to ah. If you look at the person next to you and think ooh, awesome, they're in a perfect position, right? To, for an ah, they just need to give it some time and a transformation can take place and they can move from ooh to ah. Now, Jesus was the ultimate in moving people and circumstances and relationships from ooh to ah, from broken to restored, from sickness to health, from emotional bondage to emotional freedom, certainly from spiritual loss to spiritual gain, to spiritual bondage to spiritual freedom. Jesus was the best at that. We encounter another story of Jesus salvaging someone 
in Mark chapter 2. It's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Both of them tell the lives of Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is going into a city called Capernaum, which doesn't mean a lot to us, but Capernaum had become Jesus' second home as an adult. Uh, this, a lot of His disciples were from there. He hung out in Capernaum a lot. And so Jesus is coming back into Capernaum, and the crowds are beginning to build wherever Jesus went. Now, Mark blames it on a leper at the end of Mark chapter 1. If you read the last, uh, I don't know, five or six verses of, of Mark, Jesus heals a leper, and then He says, don't tell anybody what happened to you, which doesn't work because the leper goes out and tells everybody what happened to him, and you can't blame the leper for that. I mean, if you or I had a life-threatening disease, a disease that was 100% going to lead to our death, and it was going to be a slow, agonizing death, and it was a disease that separated us from all of the people that we loved because it was highly contagious, and then somehow that disease was gone, we're not going to keep our mouth shut. And the leper was the same way. Like He tells everybody... But I think it's a little harsh just to blame the leper. I mean, the crowds around Jesus were largely Jesus' fault and not so much the leper's fault. If you read chapter 1, Jesus is baptized publicly. Everybody's starting to see who this is. John the Baptist tells everybody who this is. Uh, Jesus, in verse 14, begins to preach all throughout Galilee, like hundreds, maybe thousands of people are hearing from this guy for the first time. They're becoming interested in what he's doing. He calls his disciples. Uh, he drives out in verse 21, beginning in verse 21, he drives out a demon which gets a lot of attention. I don't know if you've ever been around that sort of thing, but if you drive out a demon, you're going to get a lot of attention. That's Jesus. Verse 29, the heading in my Bible says, Jesus heals many. So it's not, not like Jesus was on this top secret mission. that He was trying to be covert. Jesus heals many. Many, the first person who talks about is Peter's mother-in-law. She has a deathly fever and Jesus heals her. I'm not sure Peter asked Jesus to heal her. But nonetheless, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then you keep reading, he heals many people. So it's not just this one leper. Mark blames him. Jesus is doing all kind of public things. And so whenever Jesus went somewhere, the crowds begin to build Around him, and that's what we find in Mark chapter 2. A few days later, meaning after the leper had been healed and he was telling everybody about it, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So Jesus rolls into Capernaum, crowds start to follow him, and they start to kind of spread the word. Like the chatter in the street, the talk of the town is, hey, Jesus is back, I wonder where he's going to go, I wonder if he's going to heal somebody, do that whole demon thing again, let's get close, let's try to figure out where Jesus is. If, uh, if anybody still reads the King James, in the King James Version, it says, it was noised that he was in the house. Like there was this roar, it was kind of this low roar all throughout the city. Jesus is here, where is he going? Does anybody know where he's going to stop? And sure enough, Jesus goes inside of a house and he's going to teach like he often did. When he got inside the house, though, the crowds poured into the house until the house was full. And then the crowds poured around the house. 
until they were two deep and five deep and ten deep and trying to see in the window. And even if they couldn't see, they were trying to hear what Jesus was going to say. And so there was this mass of people inside and outside of the house as everybody began to run to see what Jesus was going to do. Everybody except for one person in our story. This person did not run to see Jesus. Uh, He wasn't like Zacchaeus. He didn't run around the crowd and climb up a tree. He couldn't climb. He couldn't run. He couldn't walk. The story tells us that this this guy was was paralyzed. And that's all it tells us. There's there's no backstory. Um, We don't know exactly... Uh, was he paralyzed from the waist down or the neck down? We, we don't know any of that information. Has he been paralyzed his whole life? Was it an accident as a child, accident as an adult? We don't know. We just know this guy's paralyzed. We, we do know that in the first century, there were not accommodations for you if you were handicapped, certainly to this degree. Uh, n- nobody built a ramp for you. Nobody installed a lift for you. There weren't wheelchairs for you. There, there weren't rails to help you along. There wasn't physical therapy or occupational therapy. There wasn't disability insurance. You were on your own. The only thing you could hope for was that you had family or you had loved ones who cared enough about you to help meet your needs, to make sure you were fed, to make sure you were moved occasionally to the bed, out of the bed. Otherwise, you laid. You sat day after day after day, and that was your existence. You didn't run when the crowd ran. You just waited. And on this particular day, everybody's going somewhere. Everybody's talking about something that's happening, and you can't go except. The man in our story actually had some people who did care about him. A group of friends. We don't know how many. The Bible tells us there was some of them, four of them are identified, but it kind of reads like there were more of them. Let's let's read it together in verse 3. Some men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So a group of men, four of them carrying this paralyzed man on his mat. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. This is one of many stories in the Bible that I just want more information. Like if I run into Mark in heaven, I'm going to go like, come on, how come you didn't give us more details? Like we needed details on this particular story. Like to start with, I want to know what the conversation was when they ran in and picked him up and started out of the house. Like did they tell him where they were going? Did they tell him the plan? Did, did he get a vote in the plan? Because in my mind, he doesn't get a vote. Like They just run in, they grab him, they start running down the street, headed toward the crowd is. And then second, I want to know, Who came up with the roof idea? Like, which one of them said, I have a great idea. We can get him through the roof. Who was that? And did they talk about it? Like, was there a planning meeting? Or did they just look at each other and look at the roof? And did they ask the guy on the mat? Because, again, I don't think they asked. Like, what was he going to do? There was nothing he could do. They look at the roof, and they start up to the top of the roof. and, And before anybody can protest, they start tearing up somebody's roof, which I'm thinking is not normal. 
Obviously, roof in the first century is not your roof. It's not my roof. It's not wood and nails and shingles or metal or whatever roof you have. It's not our roof. First century Capernaum, it would have been mud and branches and leaves. And yes, it would need constant repair. I mean, if you have a mud roof, then you're constantly going to be repairing holes in it. But still, I'm thinking it is not the norm to tear a hole big enough to fit a person through it. I don't think anybody was doing that on a daily basis. And these guys look at each other and they start towards the roof and they're ripping stuff off. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is in the house teaching. And people are listening to Jesus and dirt begins to fall and branches begin to fall on the people, on Jesus, in the house. And apparently nobody left. Like nobody went running out of it. If somebody started coming through the roof, don't tell me you wouldn't get up and run out of here right now. Nobody leaves, apparently. Dirt's falling. They get the hole big enough and they lower it. The whole mat and the man, and he lands right in front of Jesus. And what happened? Like he's looking at Jesus, Jesus is looking at him. I mean, somebody said something. He just go, Sup, bro. <laughs> this wasn't my idea. Like I had nothing. I would leave if I could. I can't. I'm sorry. I'm stuck here. Like what happened right right there? Because at some moment, the service stopped. And whatever Jesus was talking about, it had to be good, it was Jesus. But it stopped, and everybody's watching Jesus, and everybody's watching this guy. And Jesus looks down at the guy, and up at the roof, and down at the guy, and up at the roof. And then Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. There's a whole lot in that verse. When Jesus saw their faith, I mention this occasionally because Jesus mentions it so much. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the stories of Jesus' life. The thing that Jesus comments on about people more than anything else is their faith whether they have it or they don't have it. And so very often, Jesus will enter a scene and he will say, I've never seen such great faith. Or other times, usually it's his disciples, he'll say, why don't you have more faith? Oh, ye of little faith. I think it's the King James Version. Jesus is always commenting on how much faith someone has or doesn't have. When Jesus saw what was happening, the scripture says, He saw their faith. And in a sense, Jesus is capable of detecting what's going on in hearts and in minds. And so he saw their faith in the sense that he was aware of it. Like he could tell they really believed. But I think he saw their faith. Because their faith led them to act. Their faith led them to do something. He saw four guys carrying a friend on a mat, tearing up a roof, lowering it through the roof to the house. He saw their faith in actions. James, Jesus' brother, later on is going to write about faith. And here's what he's going to say. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Like if you just say you believe, but it doesn't affect your life, your actions, like what you do, then is that really faith? He goes on in verse 18. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I just watch me. You don't have to see into my heart. You don't have to look into my mind. Watch the way I live, and my trust in Jesus should be evident. My trust in God should be evident by the way I live, by the things I do, by the way I treat people. Jesus saw their faith. They, they trusted God. They trusted God enough to act on their faith. When Jesus measured faith, when Jesus noticed faith, it, it wasn't faith in me. It wasn't like a, a self-confidence thing. There's nothing wrong necessarily with self-confidence in, in, in the right circumstance. But it wasn't, I believe in myself. I believe I can do it. Jesus noticed they trusted Jesus. It's not faith in faith. It's not if I just believe enough. It's not, it's not that my faith can create something. It's that I believe in Jesus. Jesus saw that they acted on what they really believed about Jesus. Other interesting word. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their collective, plural Jesus saw all, the whole picture, guys on the roof, the other guys who helped get him here, the guy lying on, on the mat. Jesus saw their faith. He, he doesn't say he saw the faith of the paralyzed man, even though there was faith there because Jesus is about to act according to his faith. There was faith there, but I think primarily Jesus is talking about the faith of the guys that have been digging through the roof. Jesus saw their faith. Faith collected, which prompts some questions. Here's a question. When is the last time your faith pushed you to try something new? When is your faith, when's the last time your faith pushed you out of a comfort zone into an unknown where you really had to trust God for something? You really had to trust Jesus for something. I, again, I, I don't think tearing up people's roofs was common. And if you're tearing up everybody's roof, that's not faith. That's vandalism, right? I don't think they're doing this all the time. But there was this moment. Jesus is right there. And if we can get this guy to Jesus, I believe Jesus will do so. Let's do something we've never done before. And I, I, don't, I don't mean live your life recklessly. I don't mean do crazy things all the time. All right? Just because it's crazy doesn't mean it's faith. Sometimes it's just crazy. All right? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But, but I'm saying, like, if we walk with Jesus, if we live for Jesus for, for five, ten years, our, most of our life, and there's never been a moment when we've tried something that we didn't really know was going to work because we felt like Jesus was calling us to that, we felt like Jesus was in it, then how much faith do we have? When's the last time walking with Jesus meant taking a risk for you, for me? Stepping outside of the norm 
When's the last time? Another question from this part of the story. Who are the people who had faith for you when yours was weak? Because that's what I think is happening here. There are four guys on the roof. And I think their faith is for the paralyzed guy. Because he's been laying there a long time. I mean, he's, been, he's been waiting day after day, month after month, who knows, year after year. Maybe his whole life he's been waiting for something. And there were four guys that said, you may be given up, but we're not given up. You may be weak, but we're going to be strong for you. And we're going to pick up this mat and we're going to carry it as far as we have to carry it. And we're going to dig through a roof. If we have to dig through a roof, we're going to believe for you, even if you're too weak to believe. We need people like that in our lives. We we all go through times when we struggle to, to trust in the way that we should trust, believe in the way that we should Believe, and it's, it's not that, that we aren't followers of Jesus, not, not that we aren't going to heaven, it's not that we aren't a, a, a Christian. It, it may not be that at all. It's just life sometimes, the emotions of life, the struggles of life weigh on us, and sometimes we get to a point where we just struggle to keep believing. And those are the times you need people in your life who will say, well, I'm going to believe for you until you believe again. I'm going to trust God for you until you start trusting God the way you know you need to trust God, and we need those people surrounding us. Let's flip the question around, though. Who can you believe for? We need those people in our lives. At the same time, you need to be that person to somebody, too. And maybe you can't do both at the same time, right? We go through seasons. We need people to believe for us. And, and then we re- regain our strength and we regain our trust in Jesus. And then we need to find somebody who needs us to believe for them. We need to find somebody that we can say, look, I'm going to pick your mat up. And I'm going to walk you as far to Jesus as I can walk you. And if I have to dig through a roof, I'm going to dig through a roof. I'm going to do everything I can because I know you're having trouble believing right now. I'm going to believe for you. Who, who, who is that for you? And if there's not somebody, maybe, maybe God's going to lead you to somebody this week. Maybe God's going to lead you to somebody this week that you can believe for. You can have faith for. You can trust Jesus for them in the difficult circumstances that they're going through. You may want to, if there's been people like that in your life, People who trust for you, people on the roof for you, people doing whatever it takes for you. And it's been a while since you've acknowledged that. It's been a while since you've said thank you to that. Maybe this is the week, right? Text, email, phone call, card. Like there was a civilization at one time used to actually write cards and like put stamps, stamps on them. It was, weird organization called the post office they'll pick it up from your door it's kind of creepy but they'll get it from your door they'll take it to their door maybe maybe now is the time you look back at your life and you know boy that person stood in the gap that person prayed that person exhibited faith when i was having trouble exhibiting faith and i need to say thank you the whole service stops man comes through the roof Everybody's waiting for Jesus' next words, which is, 
it's a good time to point out that Jesus didn't seem to mind interruptions. Again, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When When you read the Gospels, you find all of most of the significant conversations and interactions that Jesus has are all interruptions. Most of the significant moments between Jesus and another person, they read as if they were unexpected. Like Zacchaeus in a tree. What? Interruption. Here, teaching, man comes to the roof. Most of us don't like interruptions. I don't like interruptions. And yet... If Jesus' most significant work almost always took place as a result of interruption, maybe there are interruptions in our lives that Jesus wants to use, that Jesus put us there, that He's allowing an interruption so that we could speak, we could say, we could be there for somebody. Again, you know, disclaimer, not every interruption is a divine moment. I know that. Some are just interruptions, right? Some people are just interrupters. You know who they are, like, Every day, five times a day, that person interrupts you. Maybe that's a spiritual moment and maybe it's not. I'm not saying all interruptions are. I am saying that maybe that thing that throws your schedule off this week, that thing that puts you a little behind this week, maybe if Jesus were in that circumstance, He would use that to do something for eternity. And maybe... That's what you and I should do as well. Verse 8. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's an incredible moment. Through the roof, on the floor, Jesus speaks for the first time. Everybody's waiting. And his words are, Son, your sins are forgiven. Except that's not why the friends brought him to Jesus, right? I mean, the whole story is he's paralyzed and his friends want him to be able to walk. And so they get him to Jesus. And Jesus' first words are, son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, but what about walking? What about getting up? What about taking care of himself? Jesus has this way of always pressing through what we see as the problem and getting to what the problem really is. That was just his way. Now, he's going to come back, and he's going to solve the ex- exterior. I'm not saying he's not concerned about that. I'm not saying he's not concerned about whatever's happening in your life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that Jesus, more importantly, wants to f- get to the inside before we fix the outside. Let's fix what's going on in the heart. Let, let's fix what's happening in here. Because the reality was Jesus could fix his body And his life would improve for the rest of his days on earth. Or Jesus could fix his heart. And his life would improve for all of eternity. And in the scale that Jesus sees, eternity always outweighs now. Eternity always outweighs this one short life. And so for Jesus, he knew, let's get the heart right. We'll deal with everything else. Let's get to the heart of the issue, and, and sometimes that's what frustrates us about Jesus. It frustrates us about what God's doing in our life because we see the problem, right? We know the problem is this. 
The problem is my spouse. The problem is my boss. The problem is my kids. The problem is my parents. My pro- Jesus, you should fix these things. And when Jesus doesn't fix that, but instead goes to work on our heart, sometimes we get frustrated. It goes back to faith. Do I trust, do I trust that Jesus is fixing the most important things in me? Even if the things I want fixed don't get fixed right now. Do I trust that Jesus knows where to start in my life? Or do I feel like Jesus needs my help knowing where to start on what to fix? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, always when Jesus taught or healed or breathed or anything, there were multiple reactions to Jesus. There was a, wow, that's incredible. There was a, oh, that's mysterious. And, and then there were the people who just got mad. And that crowd made it into the house that day. Jesus, uh, Mark writes, Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which, as an aside, that was the whole point. Jesus' whole point was to say, pay attention. It's only one that can forgive sins. That's God. I'm forgiving sins. Guess what that makes me? This is Jesus Jesus saying, I'm God. Just want you to know. I know it's a big concept. I know it's hard for you to understand. I'm God. I'm going to forgive this person's sins. I want you to remember, I'm God. And there were these people who were furious that Jesus would put himself in the place of God. Just kind of an aside, I'm not trying to read too much into this. Interesting to me that Mark describes that group as the people who was sitting. Ever notice how the sitters are always the one that complain the most? Ever notice how the, the people who sit are always the one who think you're not doing it right? You're not spiritual enough, you're, you, you don't know enough, you're not smart enough. If I were doing it, well, you're not doing it. You're sitting over there. It's always the sitters that have all the critique. You know who's not complaining? Four guys on the roof. They're still trying to catch their breath. Right? They're sweating and panting, and they have mud under their fingernails. They're not complaining. The folks who are complaining are the ones who are doing the sitting. And there's something about getting your hands dirty. Talk about faith that can be seen. There's something about digging and working and getting people to Jesus and approaching life with the whatever it takes. I'm going to move people to Jesus. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get the people in my life closer to Jesus. When, when you and I are on that mission, we have very little time to complain. We, we live... In a, a world, an environment of criticism, right? It's the new sport. Like everyone is critical of everybody. No matter how you say it or how you post it or how you tweet it or how you answer it, doesn't matter what you say, somebody thinks you said it wrong or you should have said it differently or you should be on that side and you shouldn't be on that side and you should be against them and not for them. Like we live in this hypercritical world. Because we live in a world of a bunch of sitters. 
God is calling us to mission, to ministry. God is calling us to the hard work of heart work in people's lives. And if you will throw yourself into that, if you will trust Jesus and throw yourself into that, that will be precious little time to critique every little thing. Jesus confronts them. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Unbelievable, Jesus. So a life is salvaged. Sins are forgiven. People exercise their faith. And there's still that little group of people who don't like it. When you read the stories of Jesus, especially these narratives... Sometimes it can be interesting to ask, where do I fit in this story? Like, who's me? Um, <clears throat> you don't get to be Jesus, by the way. <laughs> Jesus, part of Jesus is taken by Jesus. I know some of us think we're Jesus. Jesus is taken. You don't get to be Jesus. But where, where are you? are you? Are you always on the side evaluating what everybody else is doing? Are you always on the side evaluating whether this was spiritual or Jesus or, or godly or biblical? Are you like always criticizing? Are you, are you on the roof? Like when you look at your spiritual life, is that you? Are you one of the four guys busting through the roof, dirt everywhere, making a mess? Because you want somebody to get to Jesus. Are you, are you one of the crowd, the people that watch this whole thing? And, and I'm, I'm guessing they wanted to know more about Jesus. They wanted to hear him speak. They, the, 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 the end of the story says they were amazed. Like they had been with Jesus. They had watched Jesus. They had heard Jesus. And they left the house amazed at Jesus. They went away saying, we have never experienced anything. like We have never seen this before. That's what happens to people who get close to Jesus. And, and our, our spiritual lives, if we're not careful, our spiritual lives can get very repetitive. Um, they can get very mundane. Been a believer for very long. You know the right words to say, and you know where the passages are, and we come and we sing and we sit and we leave and we come and we sing and we sit and we leave. But, but when you read the, the New Testament, when Jesus showed up, when Jesus said something, when Je Jesus did something, people left amazed. People were so locked in on Jesus. The roof didn't matter, and the dirt didn't matter, and the interruption and the order of service didn't matter. Like, nothing mattered. Because we got to be with Jesus. Or maybe the character that you are is the one that got brought and there's some part of your life that's paralyzed. Maybe you think it's dead. It's broken. It's messed up. What I can tell you is the Jesus of Mark 2 
is the Jesus of July 22nd, 2018. He's the same Jesus. Jesus didn't stop being Jesus at the end of the New Testament. Jesus didn't stop being Jesus when the Bible was finished. The miracle-working, restoring, salvaging work of Jesus continues today, and it, it can be ours. I, I'm not saying that Jesus is going to snap his fingers, like all your problems just immediately going to get fixed. I'm saying Jesus can fix what's broken. Jesus can restore the things that aren't working in your life, in my life, in the lives of the people that we love. Trust Him. Believe He is who He says He is. God, we thank You that we serve a powerful Savior. We serve a miracle-working Savior who is at work in the world now just as He was in the first century when He was physically with us. God, Your Spirit is here with us right now. And there are some They look at their lives, they see a junkyard. They see ooh, they see brokenness. They see some area that they thought would be different, they thought would be better, and it's not. And they need you to salvage that. I thank you that you speak words of healing, words of good over us. And so may we, we end this service may we strengthen our faith in you not faith in our circumstances or faith in other people not faith in ourselves not even faith in faith God help us to put our faith in you to trust you wholly I pray it in Jesus name